All right. If you're listening to this, uh, you'll probably notice a little different, uh, probably sound quality and setting. Um, I recorded this uh, class and for some reason, partway through my microphone cut out. It, it wasn't dead. It just kind of muted itself. So uh, I'm just here in my office. Uh, didn't want to miss this section of Genesis chapter two, verses eight through 17. So I wanted to walk through it um, just so if you weren't here at the class or wanted to re-listen to the material, um, there's not a gap in, in uh, the study for you. So um, we're going to look at Genesis 2, 8 through 17. Um, you'll notice probably when we're, we have class, a lot of times I'm asking questions. I'm trying to uh, have some conversation. And so I'll kind of skip over that part. I'll still, I'll kind of just jump to the answer without asking the question, having the conversation. So it might be a little shorter than what we'd have in a class situation since I'm here by myself and not going to have that dialogue. But we're going to look at Genesis 2, 8 through 17. Uh, the section prior to this, we talked about how it was a uh, transition from uh, chapter one and really the first three verses of chapter two, which were focused on the chronology of that creation week. And so when we came to verse four, we see really a transition and focus to the man uh, and God's creation of mankind, uh, man and woman, as we'll see throughout the rest of chapter two. Uh, but what we're going to look at today in, in verses eight through 17 are um, really the, the setting of uh, where God places the man. Of course, we left off uh, with verse 7, that God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so now we're going to focus more upon the setting of where God places Adam, this first man. And so let's read these verses together, and then we'll walk through them verse by verse. So beginning in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. Uh, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see here again the setting of um, these events in Genesis chapter 2. And, and of course, we're focused here on day 6 of creation. Um, a lot of the things mentioned in these this chapter is not necessarily in chronological order. But it's focused upon the man and how the rest of creation um, is focused upon him and God's purpose for him. So, we see, first of all, he's plant, he's, uh, God plants a garden in verse 8, uh, and I asked the class, uh, what's the name of the garden? And a lot of people said, well, of course, it's the Garden garden of Eden. Well, uh, technically, if we look at the verse, the, the name of the garden itself is not Eden. It is more of a garden that's in the midst of Eden. So there, there's almost a picture of a larger area, larger region named Eden, and this garden is specifically in that area. 
So you could refer to it in that way, the Garden of Eden. It's the garden that exists in Eden, but it's not the name of the garden itself. In fact, in Genesis 13, 10, uh, you know, a few chapters later in Genesis, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So um, really, we could probably, if we were given a name to the garden, it would be the garden of the Lord or the garden of God, God's garden. Um, and so this garden exists in the area called Eden. Uh, Eden uh, itself, that name means delight or pleasantness. You could think of it as like a paradise, uh, as we see a lot of mention here uh, of this area. So we think about the location of the garden. Um, there are very several geographical clues in these verses that we would potentially use to help us locate the Garden of Eden. Um, a couple of those are, it mentions east, uh, mentions the name of rivers, uh, there's the name of other regions in the area. So there's a lot of geographical clues that we could use if we were trying to find the location. And ask the class, first of all, thinking about this idea of uh, God planting a garden in the east, from what perspective is in the east? And I think someone spoke up in the class and said Jerusalem, which, of course, we know that area of Jerusalem, Canaan land, the promised land, of course, would definitely be a possibility. Um, some have suggested, one commentator I read was that maybe God created Adam in a different area uh, from where he created the garden, and then he led man to the garden. So it could be in the perspective of where Adam was in relation to the garden before God led him there. That's a little far-fetched, a little hard to maybe consider, but most commentators seem to think that it was more probably from the perspective of Moses and maybe from Sinai. Um, so he's referencing it's east of where we where they currently were around Mount Sinai as they're, as he's writing this. So uh, just something to think about. Uh, some other clues we see, geographical clues, are, again, the name of, of rivers. Um, it mentions four rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, which are very well-known rivers today. We can locate them on a map. But the Pishon and the Gihon are not uh, rivers that we can identify today. Some have suggested that the Gihon is the Nile, and the Pishon is either the, the uh, Ganges or Indus River, um, but we just can't verify this. And so um, we see these mentions here. Again, if we're thinking of eastward of Sinai, some people would say that's modern-day Iraq or Mesopotamia. I will pop up just a map that I showed uh, to the class, and uh, this is, I believe, directly from the ESV Study Bible uh, in their notes in this section, and it shows... Um, you can see on this map a couple different rivers, but you see primarily the Tigris River and the Euphrates River, which, again, we're familiar with. And as it describes here in these verses, there's a river that flows out of Eden, and that then divides and becomes four rivers, two of which are the Tigris and Euphrates. So you see on the map there uh, a mention of Eden down near the Persian Gulf and one closer up toward Mount Ararat and the Black Sea. Um, because this is where those rivers would have merged. So in their mind, they're thinking, well, if there's a source river that then splits, maybe Eden's in this location or this location based on where the Euphrates and Tigris River are today. So um, just some perspective here. But as I asked the question, question in class, there's some challenges 
um, to why we cannot pinpoint the location of Eden. And I think the primary challenge and primary reason that we wouldn't be able to say, here's where Eden was, is because after the flood, the topography of the area, the, the geographical features um, would have been completely changed. And so truthfully, the Euphrates River and Tigris River that we have today are probably nothing like what they were when God's originally creating. So you imagine the, the earth's covered with water, mountains are being formed, things are happening that tremendously change the landscape around. And so it's very likely that when uh, Noah comes off of the ark and, uh, you know, as people are starting to spread across the land, that they're just naming these rivers based on the rivers that existed prior to the flood. So the Euphrates and Tigris rivers that we have today may not be the exact same rivers they were then. So just a lot of changes, a lot of things that, you know, there's really no need for us to try to locate Eden, even if we could find a, a spot where we've determined this is where Eden is. It's not there because of the curse and because of um, what's taken place all those years uh, since all those years passed. So uh, just something to think about as well. Now, some have maybe said, well, why would Moses give these details and this mention of these lands and mention of these rivers if we weren't to locate where Eden was? Well, I think the beauty of this is that what we see here is that this is an actual place. Uh, a lot of people try to allegorize scripture and allegorize, especially chapter two uh, and even three and even going back to one. Um, <clears throat> but it's important that Moses, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a view that the, this was an actual place. This was a physical place. This is not just some allegory of paradise and we've blown it or what, whatever. The, this is a real place. And so I think that's what why we see the, the mention of the rivers and things we do. Uh, maybe as God revealed this to him, that this was an actual place that um, God created. And so we see this perspective of, uh, the location. Um, we also see in verses 9 through 14 just the abundance of the garden. And I asked the class, what are some things we see in abundance in these verses? And clearly, as you see uh, reading these verses, there's an abundance of trees. You know, there's two trees specifically mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it talks about just a uh, every type of tree, just a picture of tons of different variation of trees. They're beautiful trees. They're pleasant to the sight. They're good for food. Um, so you see an abundance of trees, God's provision there. Um, you see just, yeah, the aesthetic beauty of the land. Um, you see the abundance of water as there's this one river that flows through and splits off. I mean, for these to be, uh, for these plants to really thrive, there's just an abundance of water mentioned. And then it mentions gold, um, other types of precious stone that just seem to be in abundance. Um, you know, you think about gold today, you go out in maybe a river and you try to pan for gold and you get a tiny little nugget. But the picture here is just there's an abundance of gold, right? There's just gold laying around, chunks of gold, like, you know, pieces of rock, something like that. So you just see the beauty and abundance of this garden and this area surrounding uh, the garden and surrounding Eden and those neighboring regions. So you just see the abundance of that. Then we come to verse 15 and we see. Uh, really the perspective of this garden is for man and for him to keep. And so verse 15 tells us about the keeper of the garden. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
Um, so I asked the class, why did God place man in the garden? What's the purpose? Um, well, the purpose that God gives to the man in relation to the garden is to work it and to keep it. Okay, so two ideas here. Work, as we see here from the very beginning, is a part of God's created order. Even prior to the fall, work is established and, and Adam is to work the land. Now, after the fall, work becomes painful. It becomes laborious. It becomes something that you sweat, that you are tired over, that you um, just have to have a struggle with. But prior to um, the fall, there's work. And I think it was just, um, you know, almost complete satisfaction. Just like today, when we do a, a job, we work hard at something, you know, and you can look and see the work that you've accomplished. You know, I've always liked um, painting or, you know, cutting grass because you can do all that work. And then you look back over what you've done and you can see the difference that your work made. You know, if you've got a grass or a yard full of you know, weeds and the grass is high and then you cut it and it, you weed eat good and it looks great. Or you paint a wall that was not, you know, you can see the beauty of what you've done and what you've accomplished and you feel that sense of satisfaction. Now, because of the fall, you also are tired. You know, you've got sore muscles or you're sweaty because you've been cutting the grass or whatever it may be. But I just picture this work that Adam's given to do as being one of just satisfaction and and, and a, a means of worshiping God by working and doing what he's uh, called called Adam to do. So we just see this idea of work even prior to the flood. And so he's call, called to work it, but also to keep it. Um, keep it is the idea of protect protecting it. Um, but it's not as though Adam, I think, is being charged to protect it from an enemy, although we will see the enemy come in in chapter three. But it's more of just he's he's to be the steward over He's exercising stewardship over the garden. And so one of the commentators I read said that Adam is therefore both the gardener and the guardian of the garden. So I thought that was kind of interesting to work it, to keep it. He's a gardener and a guardian of this garden that God's placed him in. But I think God placing the man in the garden is more than just creating a being to work uh, and to have oversight of the garden. God created Adam and Eve ultimately to have communion and to have fellowship with. And that's not to say that God is lacking uh, in those areas. It's not to say that God was lonely and therefore he created man and woman because he didn't have anybody else to talk to. Um, that's not at all the case. God is in need of nothing. He's self-sufficient, but out of the pleasure of his goodwill, God desired to make uh, human beings through whom he could have fellowship and communion, through whom ultimately he know, knew that he would die to redeem. So God sees the full picture of this even prior to their creation. And so God creates them uh, as beings to have communion with and to eventually redeem uh, after the fall. So the garden becomes the main place on earth that God would have that communion, that fellowship with mankind. You see the picture in the next chapter of God walking in their midst fellowshipping with them. And we see it in the context of chapter three of that taking place after the fall and that's fellowship has been broken. But I imagine prior to that, there was that communion. There was that fellowship as God came down and walked in their midst and they had fellowship with him. Um, some have therefore likened the garden to the temple because uh, God's presence, of course, kind of uh, dwelt in the garden as he would walk uh, among Adam and Eve. But in the temple, that's where his special presence also dwelt. And so some have said that the garden was almost like the first temple where God specifically dwelt with mankind. 
And therefore, uh, they liken Adam to being the first priest, the one that would commune uh, with God specifically. So we see the keeper there in the garden. Um, if we look back at chapter, or sorry, verse 9 of chapter 2, and then verses 16 and 17, I didn't want to skip over this. I mentioned the tree of life um, in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, but I want to spend a little more time thinking about that now. In verse 9, we're introduced to these two trees specifically. There's an abundance of trees, but these two are specifically named. It says the tree of the life was in the midst of the garden um, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It almost suggests that they are right there together um, in the middle of the garden. And so um, we see then in verse 16 and 17, a little more specific detail given. It says the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the first tree mentions the tree of life. Adam can freely eat of that as he can the other trees. Um, I want to say this, and I said this to the class, that it, and it relates to even the land of Eden. This is These are actual trees. I don't think these are just an allegory or, you know, some kind of metaphor for, you know, right versus wrong. No, these are actual trees that God created that had actual fruit that could be eaten. And so we see these trees being created. Um, eating of the tree of life, as we saw, would ultimately give life to the person who ate it. Now we know God is ultimately the source and giver of life. And so I don't think the, the fruit of the tree necessarily was some kind of magical fruit. I think it's just maybe God instilled properties in that, that fruit that um, by eating that, they were trusting in God's provision of life. And so God would use that tree to, to give them life. Some have debated based on that. Well, if, if Adam and Eve didn't eat of the tree of life, would they have eventually died? Um, and some think that, you know, mankind's not immortal even before the fall. It doesn't seem that man was necessarily created to be immortal. But some, some believe that Adam would have eventually died, but he would have entered directly into heaven without any kind of pain. Um, much like we'll see Enoch just kind of walking in God's presence and then he just ceases to exist. So hard to know for sure if that's the case, but, um, you know, we see really ultimately death and the pain of death and all that as a, uh, a consequence of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see this tree of life mentioned again in, in the last book of the Bible in Revelation in chapter 2, specifically, as Jesus is talking to one of the churches, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so there's a reference to the tree of life being in the, the paradise of God. In Revelation 22, 2, uh, speaking of the new Jerusalem, it says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were uh, for the healing of the nation. So you see this mention again of um, in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life, and it's on either side of the river. And I remember taking a class on Revelation, and really this could be talking about more than one tree of life. It could almost be saying the tre trees of life on either side of the river. So you see this picture of this perfect paradise that's restored um, at the end of time, and, and here the tree of life is there again, and it's for the healing of the nation. So just kind of interesting to tie that from the very first chapter of the Bible to the very last chapter, 
is this mention of the tree of life and some other places in scripture as well. The other tree mentioned is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, that this was an actual tree. It's not a metaphor. You know, some have said, well, this is just a metaphor for sexual, um, you know, some kind of sexual encounter, something like, no, it's, I think it's an actual tree. Um, and we see that described that way is that this was a, a tree that God, this was the, the first command in scripture that God gives um, throughout all, all the Bible. This is the very first command. And it's a very simple one. You've got all these trees to eat from. You can eat from them. They're beautiful. They're good for food. This is the one tree that you're not allowed to eat of. So one, one command in the garden, very simple command. But we do have to step back and ask the question, why would God create this tree at all if there was a punishment for eating it? Wouldn't it be simpler for God to just not have that tree there and just put them in a perfect environment and, hey, eat of all these trees. There's no rules. Go for it. Well, um, at the end of the day, this is one of those questions that I think is beyond our complete understanding. But we know that God decided to place before man a test of his obedience and trust. And I like the way that John Phillips put this, this test or this choice that God is putting before Adam and Eve. Um, John Phillips says, a choice was placed before Adam, a necessary choice, for Adam could not have been a moral, accountable being without such power to choose. Without it, he would have been a mere automaton, a puppet on a string. But God did not make a mechanical man. He made a moral man. Once the right to decide was invested in Adam, he became a moral being. But with that right, there was always the possibility that his power of choice would be used amiss. So I like that quote because ultimately God doesn't just put them in the perfect environment. Uh, you know, it is the perfect environment and that they're, they have abundance, they have provision. But it's not an environment that's free from temptation. Um, and of course, we see ultimately they give into that. But God gives them the ability to make right or wrong choices. They're not robots that are pre-programmed to do what's right. Um, they are free from a sin nature that we have today that we've inherited because they made the wrong choice. They, they chose to sin. And so now we have a bent towards sinning. And so if you put before us today, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the tree of life. Don't eat of that tree. Every time our mind is automatically on, I'm going to do what you tell me not to do, right? And I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. We're, we're bent towards sin because of that. But here, Adam and Eve, as we're going to see, are in a perfect state of innocence. Um, they have a choice before them. And again, eventually they make the wrong choice. But God puts these before them to um, so that they can truly uh, practice that uh, aspect of ob obedience and trust, or they can choose the opposite. And so this test is put before Adam and Eve. And so the question would be, then would they choose the abundance of fruit and food that God had provided um, in all these other trees, partaking the tree of life? Or would they choose to seek after some kind of knowledge that comes apart from the fear of the Lord and the tr and trust in him? And so this, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think is a, ultimately a, as we're going to see in chapter three, it's, hey, there's this knowledge that you can gain apart from trust in God, right? Which is really what we're tempted with today as well, that um, scripture says, Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord uh, is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. So 
we see that ultimately true knowledge comes from trusting what God has said, fearing him, have a reverential respect of him, knowing that all knowledge comes through him. And here, this picture of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this actual tree, not some magical fruit. But as we're going to see them tested by the serpent in the garden was, hey, there's some knowledge that God doesn't want you to have. There's some knowledge that you can get apart from trusting him. And so that's ultimately the choice that's put before them that they eventually fail uh, in there as they disobey. Um, and so we see that because of their sin, as we're going to get to chapter three, we're born with a bent towards sin. We want to automatically choose the wrong thing in and of ourselves. But full story, we know that Christ can redeem and restore this, right? When we trust Christ, he gives us a new nature. He gives us a new desire. And then we have the ability to truly choose. Are we going to obey God? Are we going to trust him and walk with him? Or are we going to choose sin as believers? So um, we can have that sin nature renewed. And eventually, as we uh, enter into eternity, completely remove that sin nature um, and that power of sin in our life, that presence of sin completely. And so I say that to say that we as believers still have a choice today. If we've trusted Christ, we aren't like an unbeliever where we're always going to choose sin. We're, we're always going to choose what is in our best interest. As believers, we have the spirit to empower us to make the right choice, to choose obedience, to choose trust, to choose worship instead of disobedience and, and what would satisfy us uh, in and of ourselves. And so I close the class by just saying, are we going to enjoy the rich blessings that God has given us as a means of worshiping and enjoying him, just like Adam had that opportunity in the garden to partake of all that God had as a means of worship, of satisfaction in the Lord, of rest in him, or as believers, are we going to choose that which he has forbidden and said will produce death? Even as believers, there are consequences when we choose sin. Um, it, it can be detrimental to us. So I kind of left that the, the class with that question and then always open up uh, the opportunity for questions if, if there's anything in the passage, but I don't think there were any questions uh, from what I remember on this passage. So this has um, been Genesis 2, 8 through 17. Um, fortunately, uh, verses 18 through 25 did record from the class, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, you can uh, look at the link for um, for that class as we wrap up chapter 2. And uh, it was right around Christmas time that I'm recording this. So hope you all have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year if you're listening to this. And uh, thank you for taking the time to walk through this passage with me.